Hi, everyone. My name is Ming, as you, know, you met me before, and thanks for having me as one of the pastors here at the Uni Church. Um, it's really great to be here with, with most of you in the flesh uh, and for those of us also in the stream. Um, you know, we've just kicked off our series in Matthews. We're just, we're just in our second week, and this is Matthew chapter 2. Uh, and now, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, uh, but actually each year, we always start term one in a gospel, an account of Jesus' life. Uh, and we do this because as a church, everything we do flows out of our love and joy for Jesus because we're captivated by him. Uh, and so we always want to start the year by being reminded of who Jesus is and how great it is to have him as a Lord and Savior. You know, as I've read the last, spent the last couple of weeks rereading Matthew, uh, I've been reminded of this, and I hope that this term, as we go along and dig deep into Matthew's gospel, that will also be captured altogether. Uh, so let's pray, uh, asking God for us to do that work in us uh, in this passage. So let's pray together. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you that uh, you've proven your love for us, that by sending your one and only Son to die for us, that we might be reconciled to you, that you have proven that through his death. Uh, and so we do pray that as we look into this gospel, into account of Jesus' life and get to know him more, might you help us to listen carefully, soften our hearts, so that we might receive this truth with gladness uh, and remember uh, this great hope we have. Uh, might this help us to grow in our love and knowledge of Jesus and to be captivated by him. Uh, we ask for help in this but by your spirit. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, isn't it interesting that we can sometimes be so wrong or come to massively different conclusions about the same people or even history itself? You know, we have all the facts, we have all the same objective facts and details in front of us, but we can come to very different or even wrong conclusions about them. And sometimes it's awkward, sometimes it's funny, and sometimes it's just plain disastrous. When I was six or seven, you know, imagine small thing, I remember being at the warehouse with my dad. You know, I wandered off to look at the toys and I got lost. So panicking, I ran around looking for my dad and I saw the back of a familiar figure. He was slightly bald, he was short, and he was Asian. All the details were there. Crying, I ran to the man, held his hand, and said, Papa. To my horror, it was a complete stranger. So I ran off and hid. You know, we get people wrong all the time. You know, from athletes being overlooked in the draft, like Tom Brady or Kobe Bryant, to people like Walt Disney being fired from his first job for lacking imagination and having no good ideas. So often we look at the same facts and details about people or events, but come to very different responses or conclusions. You know, a more recent example, COVID. Over the past 18 months, you know, I've spent so much time talking about reports, studies, medical responses, government responses. It's taken a large part of my energy, and I'm guessing yours too. And even though we have the same facts in front of us, isn't it amazing that we can all come to very different conclusions about it all? Now look, while many of us are dealing with differing views of risk, roles of government, and safety, and they're all very important to think through, there's a far greater story going on in the history of the world. And that story demands an even bigger place in our thoughts, lives, actions, and decisions. Because our conclusions about the facts of this history determine far more than whether or not you need to get a jab in the arm, whether you took the right degree, invested in the right company, and it'll determine where we spend eternity. See, in our, message, in our passage today, Matthew reveals some incredible facts about Jesus, like we saw last week. But what we'll start to see is different people responding to him. Despite who Jesus is objectively, they all have the same facts. Despite the facts and truths about him, we see people responding very differently to Jesus. 
And Matthew doesn't just want to give us the facts. See, he wants us to get it right. And he wants us to come to the same conclusion about Jesus, that he is worthy of our worship. So keep your Bibles open as we work our way through Matthew chapter 2. And I'm quite serious about keeping your Bibles open because I'll be rushing through the narrative. Well, not rushing, but, you know, working through the narrative. (laughs) Um, So our passage starts off by telling us in verse 1 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the time of King Herod. And then some magi come from the east. They're not locals. And they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The thing to notice in these first couple of verses is the word king. It's being used twice here for two different people. Here it is called king in verse 1, and then in verse 2, the magi come and they're seeking the king of the Jews. They clearly don't think it's Herod who rules over Jerusalem. And so for us who have been reading through Matthew's gospel, it's quite clear, it's quite obvious that they're actually looking for Jesus. And this sets up the tension for the rest of the chapter. Who's the real king? Is it Herod or is it Jesus? Now, who are these magi? Why were they looking for the king of the Jews? Now, we actually know next to nothing about them. We don't even know how many of them there were. Our Christmas tradition likes to say there were three because they had three gifts. But in reality, they could have been two. They could have been four. They could have been 100. All we're told is that they're magi from the east. And what this means is they were probably astrologers. People who who looked at the stars to see what was happening. They would have been considered pagans, Gentiles, people who didn't worship the Jewish God, people who didn't worship the God of the Old Testament. But here, they somehow clearly knew about the God of Israel. And so the Magi made their way to Jerusalem. And when they got there, they went around asking in verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star rising and have come to worship him. I imagine they're quite a bit confused. Why is no, no one talking about this new king in Jerusalem? Where's all the carry-on? Fanfare, red carpet. Why is no one celebrating? What they didn't realize is that they were causing quite the commotion. Because the thing is, there was already a king in the palace of Jerusalem. King Herod was the king of the Jews. That's what he called himself. Now, to really understand what's going on here, we have to understand just how horrible King Herod was. Herod was installed by the Romans as a sort of puppet king to keep the Jews in check. And the Jews hated Herod. And Herod did a pretty good job of hating everyone else. Historically, Herod was known to be quite insecure. And by this point, he'd already killed off two of his sons. You know, he thought to himself, who's the most likely person to kill me? That'd be my sons. They'd kill me so they can become king. That, they killed, he, so he killed them, got them out of the way. That's the sort of king Herod was. So how do you think Herod felt when he heard people were asking about this newborn king in town? Have a look, verse 3. It's up on the screen. He was deeply disturbed. And it also says that all Jerusalem were disturbed as well. And I don't think that that's because Herod is such a beloved figure that when he's disturbed, the hearts of the people went out for him. It's because Herod's the kind of guy where if he's disturbed, people around him suffer. So... Herod, hearing all this, started to think, I need to do something. And notice this in verse 4. He knows exactly who the Magi are looking for. The Christ. The Messiah. Herod knew enough of the Bible to know that the Jews were waiting for a savior king who all the Old Testament prophets were promised would be coming. And so Herod, he, he calls in the Jewish religious experts and asks, well, if the Christ has come, where would he have been born? 
And they say in verse 5 and 6, that's easy. The prophet Micah tells us it'll be in Bethlehem, 10 k's down the road. And then in verse 7, he then asks the Magi, when did the star appear? Now, we aren't told why he does all this, but we know from the rest of the chapter what he's doing. He's working out the rough age of the baby and the rough area of where the baby lives. And there's only one thing on his mind. Kill off any rival. He then tries to get the Magi to do his dirty work for him and asks them, can you find the baby boy for me? Come and get me when you find him. I want to worship him too. But of course, sneaky Herod, in reality, he only wanted to find out where he was so he could kill him. The Magi then leave and they follow the star to the house where Jesus was. When they get there, they see Jesus in his young mother's arms. In verse 10 and 11, it says, they were overwhelmed with joy. It's amazing. They bow down and worship him. This is an astounding thing for grown men to do, isn't it? This little baby boy, they fall to their knees and worship him. You know, we don't get shocked by this because we know the whole story. We know Jesus is the son of God and so on. But, we, but, but let's just think about this. A small baby in a random house in Bethlehem. Some foreigners walk in and they drop to their knees and worship him. They recognize that this baby is more, even more than a king. They didn't bow down and worship the king in the palace of Jerusalem. No, this baby was more than a king to them. This baby is the son of God come to earth. Just like we heard last week, this is Emmanuel, God with us. And then it says in verse 11, they opened their treasures and they presented him with gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Everyone knows what gold is. But frankincense and myrrh were types of gum that smelt lovely. They were fragrant gums that came from rare trees and were incredibly precious. You can still actually get frankincense and myrrh today. Now, I worked in farmers for about eight years throughout my high school and uni life. And of all the sales and specials that went on, you know, you know the red dot sales and stuff, you know, 40% off, 50% off, I never once saw the perfume department go any higher than 10%. And even then, it was still crazy expensive. Perfume companies, they're not legally required to list the ingredients for you know, obvious reasons, but some actually do like to show off the quality of some of their major components. And many of them highlight things like myrrh and frankincense. Over the years, people have tried to come up with symbolic meanings for each of these three gifts. But I don't think these gifts are listed for us to try and find secret symbolic meanings. The point is, these are gifts of incredible preciousness. This was not a box of Cadbury chocolates. This was not a bar of soap or a candle. These are gifts that no carpenter's son would ever receive or even see in their entire life. But for God's son come to earth, these are the most appropriate gifts you could give. See, by coming and worshiping him, by dropping to their knees and offering these gifts, the Magi were recognizing that this baby was not just any human being. This baby wasn't even just a king. This baby is divine. This is God with us. But even more than that, these men who up to this point were foreign, pagan, Gentile astrologers, and the Bible doesn't have a lot of time for men of this profession, this, the magi, the, these magi give us a wonderful hint of something else. They are the first hint that Jesus was not just king of the Jews. That's what Herod liked to call himself. But Jesus is far bigger than that. These magi are the first hint that actually 
Jesus is the Lord of the whole world. He's the Lord of all people. And Jesus offers his hope and salvation and his gift of eternal life to everyone, to anyone. Whatever nation they come from, whatever language they speak, whatever religion they come from or were born into, Jesus says, I'm the way. I'm the way to know God and where you find salvation and forgiveness. The chapter now shifts. God averts the immediate crisis by telling the Magi in verse 12 not to go back to Herod and find another way to your own country. So we move on from the Magi and then focus in on Joseph and his family. Now, Matthew chooses to record three events here. And they're not the only events that happened. They're not recorded because they happened in this order. But Matthew records them because he wants to show us something. You know those times when you read or watch a biography or doco, and it's really interesting to, to learn about what happened and, and you know, how it all happened and all that? But even more than that, I think what makes history far more interesting is learning about what made it significant. What does it all mean? Why does it matter? And Matthew, as he writes this biographical account of Jesus' life, he offers us insights into the significance and meaning of the things that happened. You know, Often I meet people who say, I can't trust Matthew. I can't trust Mark, Luke, or John. I can't trust the Bible because, because the authors are biased. They're, they're all Christian, right? So the question is, is Matthew biased in his presentation, in his interpretation of Jesus' life? Absolutely he is. But that's the kind of person you want writing about someone like Jesus. See, just think about this. Who's going to write the most insightful, perceptive biography of that great All Black. Someone who's indifferent to rugby, you know, they'll occasionally watch it, but they're not biased. They'll watch lots of other sports too. They're interested in, in lots of other things and people. They're what you might call neutral. Or would you rather read the biography, biography written by someone who loves rugby, who's traveled with the team? Perhaps they've even been on the inside as a manager, coach, or player. See, I think the person who's most passionate about the subject will write the better biography. Our bias and enthusiasm about a subject doesn't mean we'll just make things up, tell lies, produce a piece of propaganda. How does that sort of writing honor the person we're writing about? See, Matthew doesn't just tell us about Jesus. He wants us to understand him and be amazed. And we'll see that throughout our time in Matthew's gospel. But in the second half of our chapter today, Matthew shows us in particular just how much to the great extent that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So verse 13 to 15, we have the first event, the escape to Egypt. Joseph didn't realize it, but his family was in imminent danger. The angel appears to Joseph to warn him about Herod. And he says in verse 13, should be up on the screen, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. If you just put yourself in Mary and Joseph's shoes, you can imagine just how horrible this would have been. See, effectively, they just have to just pack up their stuff with their, with their tiny baby and run to the border. This would have been about 120 kilometers. That's like hiking from, from here to Whangarei or Hamilton. Well, they somehow made it, perhaps because of all the gifts they received from the Magi, and they stayed in Egypt until Herod died. Now, here's the thing. Matthew wants us to know that there's something more going on here. This wasn't just fancy footwork or quick thinking by Joseph. 
This was actually part of God's plan all along foretold in the Old Testament. So have a look what it says in verse 15. It says, He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. See, Matthew's quoting Hosea verse 11, chapter 1 from the Old Testament. Now, we might be familiar with what, with what I call predictive prophecies. And Jesus fulfills a lot of these. Predictive prophecies are like how a descendant from King David will come and be the Christ and rule forever. Or how a suffering servant is going to come and suffer for the sins of people and die in their place. These sort of predictive prophecies are clear, they're easy to understand, and they're wonderful when you read them. But what we have here is something different. Because Hosea 11 wasn't talking about the Christ or the Messiah or the suffering servant. He was talking about the nation of Israel. Hosea was looking back at the Exodus, and the Exodus was all about when God's people, the nation of Israel, were enslaved in Egypt. Do you know the story? Israel were enslaved to Pharaoh, and God spoke through Moses, telling Pharaoh to let my son go. That is, let the nation of Israel go, who is my son. And Pharaoh, with a bit of prompting, eventually lets Israel go. And Hosea was looking back at the Exodus, where God called his son, the nation of Israel, out of Egypt. But in our passage today, Matthew is saying that Exodus is pointing forward to the, this event in our passage, pointing forward to Jesus. What Matthew is saying here is something he expands on in the rest of his gospel. And that is, we heard it last week, the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. And not just specific predictive prophecies, but the whole Old Testament. Whole events, the whole sweep of history, everything points to Jesus. And there's all sorts of examples of this. I won't go into them now. But in our passage today, Matthew is giving us the first hint of something incredibly profound. That is, Jesus is the true Israel. Which is a bit weird because Israel is a nation and Jesus is just one person. But Jesus comes along and he says, Unlike the old Israel who were called out of Egypt, what did they do? They sinned. They went out to the desert for 40 years and sinned over and over again. Jesus, the one called out of Egypt, he kept the law. He's the faithful Israel. He's God's son who actually remained faithful to God. In a couple of chapters' time, we'll see this a bit more clearly when Jesus actually goes out into the desert. But even more than that in our passage, Jesus being the true Israel means... Whenever the Old Testament gives promises about Israel, they're actually revealing promises about God. You know, it's so easy for us to miss this. Miss the significance of just how much the Bible is about. It's not about you and me, not even about the nation of Israel. It's all about Jesus. And, that's what, it, and what he's done for you and me and the people of Israel. And I hope we continue to realize that and realize just how much the Old Testament is about Jesus. Well, Let's move on to event two, and this is really quite a horrible event in history, and it's often referred to as the slaughter of the innocents. See, when Herod woke up to the fact that the Magi weren't coming back to lead up to Jesus, in verse 16, it says he flew into a rage. So he said, I don't know which baby is the so-called king of the Jews, so I'll just kill them all. He uses the information he's got. He knows roughly how old the baby is. He knows roughly where the baby's been born. And so he orders awfully, tragically, that all the boys in Bethlehem 
and its neighboring area are to be killed. All boys under two. You know, my first child is a boy who's just under two right now. And this part of the story is just, just awful to read. Mercifully, Herod doesn't actually carry on living for much longer. But once again, Matthew doesn't just think this is only an interesting or notable fact of history. Even these horrible events fulfill the Old Testament. So you have a look from verse 17. It's up on the screen and it says, Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. And again, this is not just one of these predictive prophecies. See, back in Jeremiah 31, what was Jeremiah talking about? He was talking about when the nation of Israel were being led into captivity by Babylon, what we call the exile. And Jeremiah is sort of graphically talking about those days when the exile happened. Now, who's Rachel? Why is Rachel weeping for her children? See, if we think about our Bible history, just think back a little bit. Rachel is Jacob's wife. Rachel is one of the mothers, alongside Leah, of the 12 tribes of Israel. She's effectively the mother of Israel. And here, Jeremiah is graphically saying, as Israel is being led off into captivity, the mother of the nation, Rachel, is weeping. Rachel is weeping. Why? Why is she refusing to be consoled? It's because it's like the end. It's a mother weeping for her children as they're taken from her. And as Rachel cries for her children, cries for the nation of Israel, in the same way, the woman of Ramah, which is right near Bethlehem, are crying for their children as they are wiped out by Herod. But that's not all Matthew is trying to say here. See, in using this particular quote, Jeremiah actually goes on to say in the very next sentence that while these mothers refuse to be comforted, they're weeping, they will be comforted. So you have a look, Jeremiah 31, verse 16. Verse 15 is just the prophecy that Matthew's talking about. In the very next verse, Jeremiah says this. This is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for the reward of your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration, and your children will return from the enemy's land. See, there is hope. Jeremiah knows that weeping isn't the end of the story. And here, Matthew is alluding to that exact same hope. He's saying that even as the mothers of Bethlehem weep, there is hope. And that hope is in the one who escaped Egypt, Jesus. See, we have this idea that when, when we want comfort, we search for it. You know, Herod, he wanted job security, so he wiped out all boys under two. And for, for others, you know, they find comfort in, in sex, alcohol, relationship, a satisfying job. But none of them finally deliver. Matthew's trying to show us here is real comfort. Here is the answer to insecurity, tyrant leaders, even death itself. His name is Jesus. Now, we turn to the third event, the return to Israel. Joseph and Mary and the baby stayed in Egypt for some time. But soon enough, in verse 19, another angel of the Lord appears and tells Joseph it's safe to return. Herod's dead, and so Joseph and his young family head back to Israel. Now, it seems like Joseph was intending to settle around Bethlehem, where he came from. But in verse 22, as Joseph gets back, he finds out that one of Herod's sons, Archelaus, was ruling the area around Jerusalem. And Archelaus, he was sort of a chip off the old block. And so Joseph thought, nothing's going to be better under him. 
So instead, Joseph took his family and headed up to Galilee. Why Galilee? Galilee was a backwater. It's where you went to hide. And people from Galilee had a bit of a reputation. They were considered a bit simple, uncouth, low class. They were the country cousins, you could say. And I'm not joking here. This is what the, this is what Israel, what, this is what the rest of Israel thought about Galilee. And interestingly, Joseph and Mary decide to settle in Nazareth in Galilee. And to cut to the chase, Nazareth was sort of the Galilee of Galilee. People would seriously question, can anything good come from Nazareth? If everyone in Judea laughed about the Galileans, people in Galilee laughed about people from Nazareth. You know, I was tempted to try to illustrate this, but then I realized the moment I pick a place we all know, someone's going to write on their connect card later, that's where I'm from. <laughs> People from Nazareth were considered the lowest of the low. But once again, Matthew says this was all about fulfilling Old Testament expectations. So you have a look, verse 23, it says, Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, there's a slight problem with this. Do you know what the slight problem is? Nowhere in the Old Testament mentions Nazareth or a Nazarene. So what does Matthew mean when he says, in the prophets? Well, I actually think there's a hint throughout the rest of our chapter. Notice how everywhere else, Matthew's very careful to quote a specific prophet. You know, he either says, the prophet the prophet, like he does in verse 15, or gives a prophet's name, like in verse 17. But here, if we look closely, Matthew says what was spoken through the prophets. He's not making a specific quotation at this point. He's saying there is something that the prophet, this is something the prophets helped us realize if we read all of the prophets. And I think the key is to understanding the way that people use this word Nazarene. See, Nazarene was a word of derision, Ridicule. Like I said, Nazareth was a despised place. So to be called a Nazarene meant you were irrelevant. It meant you were scorned, helpless, mocked. And many, many Old Testament prophets foretold that the Christ would be despised, rejected, and made fun of. So just a few examples I'll give you. Um, you can look them up later. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, it's all throughout Isaiah, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9. These examples and more are the prophets Matthew is referring to. And in all this, you actually get one of the most important things to understand about Jesus. See, there are two sides to Jesus. The reality, the objective fact is that he was born in Bethlehem. He's the king. He's descended from David. He's the savior of the world. He's the son of God, the ruler of the universe. That's the reality. But when people looked at him, what do they see? Someone from Nazareth. Someone to be despised. Someone to reject. Someone to make fun of. And here's the thing. It was precisely because Jesus didn't come to stand on his rights, but to die for our wrongs that he was able to bring about salvation. This is the wonderful irony of the gospel. This is why Jesus is worthy of our worship. Jesus didn't flaunt, if you like, his Bethlehem heritage. He didn't come to mingle with the high class. No, he identified with the broken, the rejected, the sinner, 
even to come from Nazareth. All this begins to show us just what kind of king Jesus is. What will it be like to be a part of his kingdom? See, God's king is different. He's not like Herod. He lays down his life. He doesn't stand on his rights. Is this something we need to emulate if we are to call ourselves followers of Jesus, citizens of his kingdom? You know, I, I struggle so much with this. You know, whenever Angela and I get into a disagreement, I find myself constantly exercising my right to be mad or upset, to not forgive. And I look back at those moments and I think, what's wrong with me? But we love exercising our rights, don't we? I love exercising my rights. If we are members of Jesus' kingdom, do we live in a way that reflects that? You know, we might not do this perfectly, but whether it's our rights under COVID or the law or our job or our family, are we willing to lay down our rights for the sake of others as Jesus has done for us? But there's an extra dimension in our passage today. See, the Christ has arrived, the one the whole Old Testament is waiting for. And what are the Jewish religious leaders summoned by Herod do? Nothing. They do nothing. Their apathy is incredible. Herod's worse. Herod actually actively attempts to kill the one he knows is the Christ. They all knew objectively who Jesus was, but in their response, they're horrible. Then you have the Magi, Gentile foreigners, the ones you least expect to do the right thing. They come from afar, offer their most precious gifts, and bow down and worship him. Isn't it amazing? Apathy, rejection, worship, different responses to the same person. Is it possible that we get people wrong, that we get Jesus wrong? You know, we might be someone who thinks, this isn't God's king, Jesus doesn't matter. Maybe, maybe we think he's a threat. Like Herod, a threat to our own kingdom, a threat to living my life my own way. Maybe even as a Christian, we've got Jesus wrong, thinking he's here to make my life better, remove suffering here and now. No, Jesus comes and tells us to expect suffering, and we need to get this right, because following God now won't be glamorous. It won't be like receiving a present from a king every minute of every day. But if you recognize what Jesus offers, you're no fool to give up everything to follow him. He's the true Israel, the one in whom all the promises of God are fulfilled. He brings comfort, he lays down your life for yours, and he offers the solution to death itself. He gives us what we need. See, I want us to realize head knowledge is not enough. I've spent the last half hour unpacking an eventful moment in history. You know, we've learned a lot about Jesus, but none of it matters if it doesn't lead to a deepening love for him. Matthew didn't just want to tell us about Jesus. He wanted us to understand him, to be captivated by him. This is one of the reasons we have connect groups. You know, it'd be so easy for us to leave here today totally unaffected by what we've heard. You know, I'm up here, and even if I tried, I probably couldn't chat to half of us. But connect groups are one of the ways where we not only learn about what we see in the Bible, but actually encourage one another to apply what it means for us, to live it out, to be transformed by it. Connect groups are so core to what we are on about as a church. So if you're not already in a connect group, can I encourage, one, encourage you to sign up to one and commit, be real. And not just growing bigger brains about God, even though that's a pretty good thing, 
but letting, it, letting that shape the way we live and in our response to him. See, we can respond to people in very different ways. Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, Jacinda Ardern, Donald Trump. It doesn't really matter. It matters with Jesus. Do we understand that Jesus is the Lord worthy to be worshipped, worthy to give our life to because he's the rightful king willing to die for us? He offers salvation to anyone who trusts in him. So let me ask, how will you respond? Apathy, rejection, or worship? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in your word today you have shown us more and more who Jesus is, that he is the rightful king. He is born of Bethlehem, but he, is, he was willing to lay down his life for us, even to come from Nazareth. We do pray that as we see these two sides of Jesus, might we see him as the king worthy of worship. Might we respond to the things that we've learned today uh, rightfully, uh, not with rejection, not with, with apathy, but help us to look to Christ for who he is, the son of God, the king of the universe. May our lives be shaped by that and help us to live lives that might honor and glorify him and so you. We ask for help, of, help in this by your spirit and may we continue to grow in our love and knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.